If you've never seen the journey, I really recommend it. It's set at the time of the St Andrews Agreement between the British and Irish governments and the political parties in Northern Ireland. It's about 2006, about eight years have passed since the Good Friday Agreement was signed, but the peace process in Northern Ireland was struggling. The Northern Ireland Assembly, which had been established by the Good Friday Agreement, had been suspended for four years, and there seemed to be no sign of it ever returning. And many people didn't hold out much hope for the St Andrews talk, which largely depended on the Democratic Unionist parties, Ian Paisley and Sinn Féin's Martin McGuinness, working together, which until now, certainly Ian Paisley had refused to do. The film itself is fictional, okay, but the, the journey didn't actually happen. But it does help to put the challenges facing both parties into context. And in the film, Ian Paisley wants to leave the talks for an evening to celebrate his 50th wedding anniversary. So he has to get back to Belfast. But bad weather means that the nearby airport is closed, but a private jet is made available. And, he's, and Ian Paisley is told, yes, you can go. And the other side agreed to allow him to go, except that Martin McGuinness insists that he fly with him. He says, we have protocols that members of opposing parties must fly in the same plane. This means that if somebody shoots down the plane, we're not going to get blamed for it. And he also wants to stop opposing unionists having the chance to get to Ian Paisley before he said yes to anything. And so for most of the film, they're on a, an eventful car journey with the two of them confronting each other about their respective parts in the Northern Ireland Troubles. And it's not too much of a spoiler, because although the film itself is fictional, the outcome is, is history, because the journey turns out to be in a historic moment as the St Andrews Agreement is signed, and although the peace process hasn't been in a good shape for a while now, during this period, the two sworn enemies did actually begin to work together pretty effectively. And in fact, in Northern Ireland, they were even known as the Chuckle Brothers. And if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch the film for free. So it's only about an hour and a half. It's a decent yarn. I recommend it. But if you've been following the Community Bible Experience readings, you'll know that this week we have largely been in the Book of Acts. And today we're going to reflect on another transformative journey. Not by plane across the Irish Sea this time, but on foot from Jerusalem to Damascus. And this journey is truly historic. Apart from the day of Pentecost when God sent the Holy Spirit to the church, you would be hard pushed to find a more significant event in church history than the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And there's been a lot of discussion about precisely what happened, whether anyone other than Paul would have seen the light, whether anyone would have understood the voice or whatever it was. And you could, but whatever it was, you could argue that what happened on, the road, on that road has huge importance, not just for church history, but for history full stop, certainly in the West. There are phrases from the story like seeing the light, or the road to Damascus moment or experience. 
that, that there are kind of common usage in English, even if people don't necessarily know much about the story that it's referring to. And in time, Saul would later change his name to Paul. Acts never really fully explains that, but I'm told that Paul was the Roman equivalent of Saul, so when he started moving into more into the Gentile world, it made more sense to use that. So Saul or Paul was born in Tarsus, near the eastern Mediterranean coast of Turkey, around 10 years after the birth of Jesus. Uh, same Pompey, who led the Romans into Israel and sort of helped establish Roman rule in Israel, conquered Tarsus sometime around 67 BC and made Tarsus the capital of his region. And as a result, Paul was born as a Roman citizen. And that was to have huge implications for how his life and his mission would turn out. To the best of our knowledge, Paul never encountered Jesus during his earthly ministry. And yet, he is, without doubt, apart from Jesus, the dominant figure in our New Testament. Out of 27 books which make up our New Testament, Paul's name is attached to no fewer than 13 of them, and about half of the book of Acts is also devoted to his work spreading the good news about Jesus into the Gentile world. And the book of Acts itself starts with the story of the disciples of Jesus, the 11 or 12 that he had around them at the start, and their early days to the church. But now over time they fade from view. And uh, after the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, we never hear of Peter again. Even James, who was the head of the Jerusalem church, is only mentioned once after Acts 15. And the reason he's mentioned is because he goes to meet Paul. And Paul's influence is felt far outside church. He is studied by anthropologists, psychologists, psychotherapists, linguists as well as theologians. It's been argued he is the most influential political philosopher in the West today, which is pretty amazing given that he lived 2,000 years ago, and the sum total of his writings, even though they make up a fair chunk of our New Testament, aren't that great. As a preacher, it would be, I know, it would be rare for me to go more than, say, a couple of weeks without either directly quoting Paul or referring to something that he said. And some would even go as far as to say that Christianity, as at least as we have come to know it in the West today, could more accurately be described as Paulianity. Because so much of how we view Jesus is through the lens of Paul. And from the moment Paul encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he spent the rest of his life grappling with what that message meant. And his genius was to apply it to areas Jesus never encountered, or things on which Jesus left no specific teaching, and, he, and to apply it for communities who knew absolutely nothing of the cultural trappings or stories of Judaism. But it's odd because 
he is incredibly influential. I also think he's often incredibly misunderstood or misrepresented. And I think it's partly because of how he's been taught in churches down through the years. If you grew up in church, particularly if you grew up in a Protestant church, whether you realise it or not, most of what you were taught about Paul was filtered through these two guys, Martin Luther and John Calvin, who lived in about the 16th century. And most of what Luther and Calvin thought about Paul was filtered through this guy, Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the 4th or 5th century. Which is fine, except that some would say that Augustine took the worst of Paul and Calvin took the worst of Augustine. And the impression many people have of Paul, and this is certainly the impression I've probably had for most of my life, is that he's a bit grumpy, a bit curmudgeonly, a bit argumentative. He's a cross between of a really randy street preacher and an inaccessible academic theologian. His words have been weaponized to exclude people of color, to exclude women, to exclude people of LGBT+, amongst others. And this is despite the fact that if you read the New Testament carefully, Paul is far and away the most inclusive person you will find in its pages. And you can tell a lot about somebody by the things that they talk about. And probably the thing that Paul talks about more than anything else is joy. Which is a bit odd for a curmudgeonly argumentative grumpy guy, isn't it? Personally, I don't think anyone could write 1 Corinthians 13, the passage about love, unless they in some way modelled it. He also told his churches things like this. He would say to them, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And that's an incredibly brave thing to say. I mean, I hope I'm a decent example, but would I always want to say to people, you know, whatever you see me do, do that. Would I be so confident? And it's either that Paul was exceptionally lacking in self-awareness, or he's very different from how he's often portrayed. And I doubt his letters would have survived, unless he was just very different from how he's sometimes portrayed. And in the community Bible experience, we're going to spend the next few weeks with Paul. There'll be a bit of a whistle-stop tour through his letters. And there's a lot of stuff in there. And sometimes it's a bit like listening to one side of a telephone conversation and you don't really know what the other person has said. But even if you don't get everything, don't panic. You won't be the first, you won't be the last. And even the Bible says Paul can be hard to understand sometimes. This is what none other than Peter had to say about Paul in one of his letters. He said, remember that while our Lord is waiting patiently to return, people are being saved. Our dear brother Paul also wrote to you about this. God made him wise to write as he did. Paul writes the same way in all his letters. He speaks about what I have just told you. Here we go. His letters include some things that are hard to understand. 
People who don't know better and aren't firm in the faith twist what he says and they twist other scriptures too. Interesting that long before we had anything like canon of the New Testament, Peter is referring to what Paul says as scripture. But as I say, this is one of the key moments in church history. And it's so important, even in the book of Acts, that the story of Paul's conversion is told no fewer than three times. As well as Acts 9, which we read this morning, Paul himself tells the story in Acts 22, when he's first arrested in Jerusalem, and he tells it again in Acts 26, when he stands before King Agrippa. Paul's not around at the start of Acts. We first encounter him towards the end of Acts 7 as Stephen becomes the first Christian to die for his faith. And as Stephen is being stoned to death, those killing him left their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we're told that Saul approved of his murder and then set out to destroy the church. He went from house to house driving out followers of Jesus and throwing them into jail. And as a result, the fledgling church was scattered. And it seemed like this was the end of the world. It seemed like a total disaster. Except something else was happening. You see, right at the start of Acts, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his followers two things. He said, one was to wait for the Holy Spirit, and the other one was a promise. That when the Spirit came, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and on to the ends of the earth. And it was the persecution of Saul that pushed them out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And it was Paul who would take it all beyond there. Because his people were scattered. They ran out to Judea and Samaria, but they took their message with them. And the result was that a movement which to all intents and purposes was quite tightly contained within Jerusalem was suddenly popping up all over the place. As many would-be persecutors over the last 2,000 years of fight to their cause, when Saul attempted to stop it out, it just spread things around. But Saul's nothing if not persistent. He sets out to sort things out elsewhere. He'll, if, if, if they're popping up over somewhere else, he'll just go and route them out there, wherever he finds them. And he goes to the high priest and he asks them for letters of introduction to the synagogues in Damascus. That way, if there's any Jews within the synagogue community there who are also followers of Jesus, he'll be able to stop them spreading their faith. Now the journey from Damascus to Jerusalem was about 140 miles. It would, it would be a journey that he would make on foot and it would probably take him about a week. He's king. Paul would take, would take most of that journey effectively alone because although he had companions, they were most likely the Sanhedrin police or guard and Paul, as a Pharisee, a separated one, would have had nothing to do with them. So he would have been basically out on his own in that group. Why was Saul so happy? What drove him so hard? 
Well, as far as Paul was concerned, followers of the way, which is what the church was called in that part of Acts, were peddling a dangerous heresy. At a time when Israel was under pressure, this lot needed to be stopped because as far as Paul was concerned, Israel needed to keep its sense of identity and purpose clear and strong. They were a people under threat. And this lot were coming along and diluting it. How could they expect God to rescue them if they weren't going to take God seriously and prepare to do what God says? That's how Paul said. And Jesus himself had appeared to sit a bit fast and loose on some things that Paul found really important. And his followers mercy would do the same. And so far as Paul was concerned, what their main problem was is that they were dangerously deluded and their leader was nothing more than a fake messiah. As he would say later to the Corinthians, the idea of following somebody who was crucified and calling them the Messiah, that was just crazy talk. And it didn't matter who you were, it was just stupid. It was a stumbling block to Jews, plain stupidity to everybody else. Being crucified, being stripped of your clothing and dignity, gas left gasping for breath and water on a cross, that's not freedom, that's disaster. That's not victory, that's defeat. But there's something else. About 1900 years after Paul of Tarsus lived, Carl Jung would say this, fanaticism is only found in those who are compensating secret acts. Fanaticism is only found in those who are compensating secret acts. Have you ever come across somebody and they hold the opinion seemingly really, really strongly and they go on about it all the time and they think, I think they protest too much. Do you know, I have friends who claim to be atheists who talk more about the God that they don't believe in then I talk about the one that I do believe in. And I pay to do it. And sometimes I suspect some of them are trying to convince themselves. And I saw Tarsus was a bit like that. There's a detail in one of Paul's own accounts of this story that makes me suggest that. In the passage we shared this morning, Saul hears the voice from heaven. It says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul replies, who are you, Lord? And the voice comes back, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and go into the city where you'll be told what you must do. When Paul himself tells the story later in Acts 26, he adds another sentence to the voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This imagery of kicking against the goads was kind of well known. It was like farmers used goads to prick or bully young bullocks into submission. And the implication of the statement is that yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's coming into Paul's life that he's thinking does not compute. That's challenging his viewpoint and he's fighting it off and he doesn't want to submit to it. 
that Jesus has been pursuing Paul or Saul for some time. And Saul's maliciously tempting the church. If anything, it's a reaction to that. He's lashing out against stuff that doesn't make sense to him. Because intellectually, Saul understood Jesus as a disgraced imposter. He saw him hanging on a cross, and therefore in Jewish terms, he was under the curse of God. And yet somehow or other, he can't shift this man from his mind. And somehow or other, these people who should have known exactly that, still seem to be obsessed with going on and on about this Jesus. Why is that? And he was there at the trial and execution of Stephen. He saw Stephen's refusal to retaliate. He heard his defence before his Sanhedrin. He, he, perhaps he kind of recognised, you know, some of what Stephen said actually made a bit of sense. Did he, uh, maybe he heard the prayer for forgiveness and watched his faith refuse to crumble as the stones rained down on him. Saul's worldview just was under threat. We don't know. But whatever it was, that journey to Damascus was historic. Because on it, Paul had an encounter which was to transform him from persecutor to preacher. From the one who tried to stamp out the message of Jesus before it got more than 140 miles up the road to one who would take it right into the heart of empire. And what transformed him was an encounter with the risen Jesus. Because his discovery of the resurrection was the real game changer. Because on that road, Paul came to see that this Jesus wasn't a shamed, dead failure. He was the risen Lord. The resurrection took the shameful cross of Jesus, turned it on its head and gave it a whole new meaning to him. He wasn't a failed Messiah, but one who had defeated not just Israel's enemies, but the ultimate enemy of us all, death. That the ultimate instrument of death and exclusion in time would become a symbol of deliverance for the whole world. And the fact that almost 2,000 years later, over 2,000 miles away from Jerusalem, that we are still sharing the story of Jesus and singing about the story of Jesus is part of the legacy of Saul or Paul. It is part of the legacy of that historic journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. But it's also a testimony of a God who has the power to transform people and situations. The death of Stephen was tragic. By any human standards, it was a catastrophe. And yet somehow it was part of the story of a man who would take the message of Jesus into the whole of his known world. No wonder Ananias didn't want to go 
the song. Didn't you know what Saul was like? He had heard the stories. Likely he had good friends who were amongst those who had suffered in Saul's hands. But the grace of God was able to reach even Saul and Tarsus. Earlier we sang a hymn that said, The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And Saul's story was telling that. You know, in a sense, Saul wasn't just bad for the sake of it. In a sense, Saul was doing the right thing. He, uh, he uh, in his head, he acted with what we would, maybe he would consider good motives. I remember a wise person telling me that part of the problem with people of faith is that they care. Now you might think that's a good thing. He says, but they care. They care a lot. And the more we care about something, and the more noble the thing we think we are defending, the lower we are prepared to stoop to defend it. The farther we will go to defend it. And what could be more noble than God? And that's why so many awful things have been led at God's door or religion's door. But God was able to turn that passion to a good end. To take the good news of the love of God revealed in Jesus to the whole world. Because even when we are far from him, even when we resist all that God wants to do, God pursues us. God doesn't give up on us. He didn't give up on Saul and he won't give up on us because God loves us and longs for us to come to know that love ever more fully. That's so much part of my own story. So much that has charged me and shaped me for ministry hasn't been forged in church environments or even from a position of faith. I was very far from God when I studied at St. Andrews, the same St. Andrews I was talking about at the start of the sermon. But it was whilst I was there that largely to fill out a timetable because I'm lazy and thought, how hard can it be? I took on a whole load of biblical studies modules. And at one, at one stage it was even suggested that I might want to transfer my degree from the economics faculty to the theology faculty. And I told them, nah, I can't see what possible use theology will be to me in later life. I can look back and see all sorts of ways when God was watching over me, when God was pursuing me, when God was calling me back to me. Because even when you're far from Him, God doesn't give up on you. God pursues you in love. And God can even take all those broken bits of our story 
and invest in what you need. That's what it means to believe in a God of resurrection, to believe in a God of transformation. The God who met Paul's historic on his historic journey to Damascus waits to meet with us too. To meet with me, to meet with you. It may not come in a dramatic flash of light. But when it comes, don't silence it. Don't ignore it. Stop protesting too much. Step into that love. As it might be the first step on the most significant journey you ever take. Grace and peace be with you.